0: everyone, this is Kim C and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a literary book podcast hosted by an English teacher who's looking into the underrated King titles for glorious fiction writing. Hello, guys and gals, and welcome to the show. We are continuing right where we left off a few months ago in terms of Roland's journey. Please forgive me for the delay. Life is happening. The world is blooming again, perhaps just a little bit. Uh, But we are resuming Kim C's trek through the Dark Tower novels for the very first time very first time in my life. So for those of you who listened previously to my Gunslinger episode a few months back, you will learn that I'm pretty new to the realm of fantasy. Um, Fantasy is not really a genre I gravitate to, except when I think about it, I mean, I've read a lot more fantasy than I realize. I'm a huge Neil Gaiman fan, huge, and he does a lot of dark modern fantasy, which is just absolutely magic and of course I do love indulging in fantasy television most definitely and I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan and Hobbit fan so those are my credentials but in terms of other greats I have not read The Wheel of Time, uh, there's a lot of, of big popular fantastical works that I just really haven't touched, and it's not a genre I gravitate to all the time, ergo I'm pretty novice to it. Um, And all around, I'm a huge novice to Roland's journey and this epic, amazing community of fans that absolutely worship at the feet of the Dark Tower. So I'm learning, I'm learning about it. And I'm slowly but surely becoming a big fan myself, guys, because with this book, um, firstly, as I was exiting my The Gunslinger for the very first time, um, after that last chapter, my friends, I was really eager to pick the story back up, but I uh, took my time. I've been interviewing a lot of people for the podcast, working on a few other outlets, um, but I put, picked up Drawing of the Three, took my time with it, and pleased... I am very pleased that I get to use this phrase in regards to this novel. And this is just such a fun little... I don't know if this is an idiom. Uh, (laughs) I'm drawing a blank on, on what it is, but this little ditty is a phrase I love to use. I love it when it's used with other people, but it fits this novel perfectly. And the phrase is, now we're cooking with gas. And oh my gosh, I... Oh, my friends, with this novel, King puts some grease in the pan and the heat is turned up with Roland's story and my guys, stuff starts to sizzle. Oh, we really get some fun stuff happening with this title, guys. And of course, King's powerhouse character writing absolutely take center stage, and my guys, I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this story, mostly because, oh my God, there's so much to celebrate of which we're going to talk about, but there is so much fun stuff going on with this, and one of the many things I loved about it that we're going to unpack here, but starting now, is it picks up right where we leave, leave left off with the gunslinger. Like I was not expecting that. I was not expecting that. And um, on top of that, it just so prominently, the entire novel features that awesome fifth chapter that I'm absolutely obsessed with from The Gunslinger. And that fifth chapter is called, of course, The Gunslinger and The Man in Black, although I believe its first publication was The Gunslinger and the Dark Man. And the whole novel is a huge episodic unfolding of this last chapter, this prophecy between, um, Roland and the man in the, the man, <laughs> I, I wanted to say the man in the black suit, which is a super wonderful short story. Inside Everything's Eventual if you haven't read it. I had a little bit of wires crossing right there. Um, But in which Roland and the men in black physically meet in the same space. Roland caught up to him. You know the story. Um, But in that fifth chapter, you know what goes down. We are revealed as the reader about what the tower is. In all its complex, mind-melting glory, it is revealed to Roland. And then there's this extra special prophecy revealed in the form of very unique, very special sort of tarot cards that are very uh specific and and just wholly unique to the men in black and Oh my God, guys! So this this entire novel is just stemming from the best part of The Gunslinger for me. Like my favorite part of The Gunslinger was chapter five, and now I get an entire novel that's basically completely uh, putting a magnifying glass and a microscope under the best part of The Gunslinger. So I'm obsessed. I'm so excited uh, that this book was as cool as it was. So. We've got um, the last chapter of The Gunslinger. It absolutely gives me life. I loved everything about it. It's definitely the best part of The Gunslinger for me as I keep uh, reiterating, I cannot emphasize that enough. I really did enjoy the other parts as you can hear on my Gunslinger episode, but there's something about that fifth chapter that absolutely blew me away. It hit the hardest, it sent my imagination soaring. And I love, love, love that soon after the epic meeting, epic meeting with the men in black, Roland reaches the mysterious beach and boom the drawing of the three begins. So I super liked this quite a bit, guys. We have a lot to uncover in this episode, and I'm so very thrilled to be with all of you guys today. So please forgive the delay. Hopefully it's always worth the wait. Um, But let's dive in with how we're going to break down this very cool second installment of The Dark Tower. So, uh, before I dive in with specific details, another reason why this novel is so very cool is coincidentally, as I kind of mentioned on the misery episode, this is a 1987 published title, which if my math and research is correct, it's been about approximately, I'm not exactly sure how to factor in the actual writing time, like when he actually did the writing, but Publication-wise, it's been about six years since The Gunslinger and the Man in Black was published as a separate story. Uh, So we've got six years since, but 1987 in particular is a year that we here at the podcast are really interested in. Coincidentally, because it's the penultimate year when we see the last release of King Books under the influence of alcohol and cocaine. So this title, Drawing of the Three, including Misery and the Tommyknockers, those three, <laughs> the the three that uh, those last three novels appear to be this final trio of substance-infused stories. At least according to the timeline, there may be more, Um, but according to research of when King said he started to pursue sobriety, it was after 1987. There was give or take a big sort of confrontation or there's a specific word they use for it of which it's slipping my mind right now. Intervention. There we go. Yes, I love it when I, when I could snatch it out of the air like that. Um, but uh, according to biographers and people who King has been very candid with in the past, around 1987, uh, 86, 87, we had a confrontation with family and friends, big intervention, and he decided to pursue sobriety. So this second novel we're exploring on the podcast is one that is connected to the final drug and alcohol days. And there is a lot to be said for that, guys and we're going to kind of highlight and talk about... where we see that a little bit, uh, maybe where we see that thought process. uh, There's some things, there's some connective threads I think we can join in terms of that aspect of it. Um, But we're going to discuss that as well as some of the unique aspects of the novel. And to map our route through this episode, we're first going to take a look at the building blocks of the novel, the the foundations, the blueprints, we're going to talk about what I noticed, what I enjoyed, and what I didn't care for. And so, if you've listened to other episodes, I'm pretty traditional in my format and I definitely approach it with a pattern, with a literary analysis agenda in mind, but because the Dark Tower, in general, I'm treating it as such an outlier set of stories. This novel is a very unique king work for me. It just is because I'm so new to the Tower adventure. But with all the Tower books, I've decided to just treat it as a one of a kind little gemstone. Each Tower novel is just going to get a different kind of analysis that's not very traditional, not very linear, and I kind of want to like lump everything in. To a big stew pot. There's lots of big chunks that we're going to break apart and explore. Um, But I'm still going to have a little bit of pattern and organization, of course, but it's definitely going to be a little bit more of a free for all than the traditional episodes where we're looking at what's working and what's not. Um, We're going to do that. It's just going to be a little bit more hodgepodge, a little bit more random and exploratory, um, which I think we'll have fun with because these stories are sort of road traveling stories. We have such a mixed bag of characters, amazing things happening. So I'm going to be tossing in the ingredients of this novel in a big old pot. Um, and then I'm going to reserve a separate pot for our character section because that's the star of the show, guys. That is the most meat. That is the, the absolute uh, quintessential big chunk Uh, the the star, the star of the show is definitely our character section. So we've got lots to investigate with our three characters. Cannot wait to do that. So much to discuss there. And I tip my hat to these new folks who are now a part of Roland's journey. So we're going to start with a big pot of the foundations of this novel and then segue into characters, see where that takes us, as well as some questions I might have to round us off as we get ready for the next installment on Roland's journey, but I must take pause for a moment, dear friends, and revisit a chunk from my most favorite, favorite gunslinger chapter because, oh guys, this is what hooked me. Like this stuff is so cool and all the prophecy stuff just absolutely sold me. So I feel the need to kind of refresh everybody to kind of remind them like here's where we started here's where we left off and I think it's a good trip down memory lane, I think it's very helpful. So I'm going to read you a page or two from the last chapter of The Gunslinger, where a lot is revealed to Mr. Roland. This is beginning on page 212 in the 2003 paperback edition. So hopefully I can do justice to the epic voices we have here, Um, but let's listen to the man in black and this very important prophecy to Roland. I'm going to tell your future. Seven cards must be turned, one at a time, and placed in conjunction with the others. I've not done this since the days when Gilead stood and the ladies played at points on the West Lawn, and I suspect I've never read a tale such as yours. Mockery was creeping into his voice again. You are the world's last adventurer, the last crusader. How that must please you, Roland. Yet you have no idea how close you stand to the tower now as you resume your quest. Worlds, turn about your head. What do you mean, resume? I never left off. And this, the man in black laughed heartily, but would not say what he found so funny. Read my fortune then, Roland said harshly. The first card was turned. The hanged man, the man in black said. The darkness had given him back his hood. Yet here, in conjunction with nothing else, it signifies strength, not death. You, gunslinger, are the hanged man, plodding ever onward toward your goal over the pits of Nar. You've already dropped one co-traveller into that pit, have you not? The gunslinger said nothing, and the second card was turned the sailor. Note the clear brow, the hairless cheeks, the wounded eyes. He drowns, Gunslinger, and no one throws out the line. The boy Jake. The Gunslinger winced, said nothing. The third card was turned. A baboon stood grinningly astride a young man's shoulder. The young man's face was turned up, a grimace of stylized dread and horror on his features. Looking more closely, the Gunslinger saw the baboon held a whip the prisoner the man in black said the fire cast uneasy flickering shadows over the face of the ridden man making it seem to move and writhe in worldless terror the gunslinger flicked his eyes away a trifle upsetting isn't he the man in black said and seemed on the verge of sniggering he turned the fourth card A woman with a shawl over her head sat spinning at a wheel. To the gunslinger's dazed eyes, she appeared to be smiling craftily and sobbing at the same time. The Lady of Shadows, the man in black remarked, Does she look two-faced to you, gunslinger? She is. Two faces at least. She broke the blue plate! What do you mean? I don't know. And in this case, at least the gunslinger thought his adversary was telling the truth. Why are you showing me these? Don't ask, the man in black said sharply, yet he smiled. Don't ask, merely watch. Consider this only pointless ritual if it eases you and cools you to do so, like church. He tittered and turned the fifth card. A grinning reaper clutched a scythe with bony fingers. Death, said the man in black simply, yet not for you. The sixth card. The gunslinger looked at it and felt a strange, crawling anticipation in his guts. The feeling was mixed with horror and joy, and the whole of the emotion was unnameable. It made him feel like throwing up and dancing at the same time. The tower, the man in black said softly. Here is the tower. The gunslinger's card occupied the center of the pattern. Each of the following four stood at one corner like satellites circling a star. Where does that one go? the gunslinger asked. The man in black placed the tower over the hanged man, covering it completely. What does that mean? the gunslinger asked. The man in black did not answer. What does that mean? he asked raggedly. The man in black did not answer. God damn you! No answer. Then be damned to you. What's the seventh card? The man in black turned the seventh. A sun rose in a luminously blue sky. Cupids and sprites sported about it. Below the sun was a great red field upon which it shone roses or blood. The gunslinger could not tell. Perhaps, he thought, it's both. The seventh card is life, the man in black said softly but not for you. Where does it fit the pattern? That is not for you to know now, the man in black said, or for me to know. I'm not the great one you seek, Roland. I am merely his emissary. He flipped the card carelessly into the dying fire. It charred, curled, and flashed to flame. The gunslinger felt his heart quail and turn icy in his chest oh my god absolutely amazing i love it so so good okay so the reason why I read that scene is to jog all of our memories. Uh, I wanted us to have a little bit of a boost and get ready for the main course that King serves up with this prophecy, because these cards, guys, these three. But firstly, and I know I touched, I actually might have read that exact scene in my Gunslinger episode. I don't remember, but I did touch a little bit on this topic in my Gunslinger episode, but because it is so pivotal and so important, we really do need to revisit it. So lots of symbolism here, guys, when it comes to traditional tarot. So we have with the man in black seven cards. So folks, whenever, if ever you have done a tarot reading in your past, whether it's at a house party or you paid somebody, there's a couple ways they'll do it for you. And In my dabblings with friends, they will lay out the cards for you on a lovely little towel or uh, (laughs) something with a lovely texture, perhaps a velvet little shroud there, typically. They will uh, lay out either seven cards or ten. Okay, and so the ten has a kind of pattern that the man in black kind of did, Uh, so they call it a cross and so there's a lot of stuff going on in the middle and then they'll build like with the cards this pattern that is stacked up on top of each other so imagine if you will you can look up if you want to type into a search engine 10 card tarot spread um it'll kind of show you what it looks like. And they do a little bit of a satellite, kind of like it said in the text. And then with cards seven, eight, nine, and 10, they will stack them on top of each other. And the 10th card is at the very top. That's the final card and it represents the final outcome. And so I'm really intrigued by that because it's like a tree trunk kind of thing, a tower kind of thing. Um, so I'm not really sure on the lore of why they spread the cards like this. I'm not an expert. I've only dabbled. Um, I'm more of an astrology person rather than a tarot person. Um, so I don't know a lot about it. I don't know a lot of behind the scenes, pagan practice stuff, but if you know, dear listener, please write into the show and give me some schooling on that because I think it's really essential to kind of nerd out to this part of Roland's journey, which I'm enjoying immensely. Um, But here with the man in black, rather than the 10 card spread, King gives us seven cards, uh, which is another popular option with tarot, a seven card spread. And so I looked up the placement significance of a seven card spread and I thought it was pretty cool guys so I wanted to share it with you um so if uh this is something that you're moderately interested in I wrote down let me grab my notes here like a super book nerd So to remind everybody, we have the first card is the Hanged Man, right? Card number two, the Sailor. Card number three, the Prisoner. Card number four, the Lady of Shadows. Card number five, Death. Not for you, Death, but Death. Number six is the Tower and number seven is life, not for you. So if we look traditionally at a seven card spread in um, tarot, here is what the, the placements mean. For the first card, past influences. Card number two, present situation. Card number three, upcoming influences. Card number four, the lady, or pardon me, best course of action. Card number five, attitude of others. Number six, possible obstacles. And number seven, final outcome. So if you connect those with the seven card spread from the man in black, there's some stuff there, guys. So uh, firstly, the hanged man, past influences present situation, the sailor, the loss of Jake. Upcoming influences, the prisoner, our boy Eddie. Uh, best course of action, the lady of shadows. Very interesting with that. Um, attitude of others, death. Also very interesting. Possible obstacles, the tower. And then final outcome, life, but not for you. So very interesting. A very interesting, guys. Um, so, of course, Roland is our hanged man. Jake's our sailor. Eddie Dean's our prisoner. Odetta, Detta, Susanna is our lady. Jack Moore is death. Destiny is the tower. And the ultimate outcome, according to this prophecy, life, but not necessarily for Roland. So, What do you guys think? Is there something there? I don't know. I may be reading too much into it, but I couldn't help it because, oh my gosh, guys, there's just so much symbolism behind these characters and this journey, so I really nerded out. I really kind of started to connect. I got heavily into it. We have so much in this story, guys. The drawing of the three is absolutely jam-packed and it's totally like a Velcro snap. To the ideas put forth in the last chapter of The Gunslinger, actually the entire story collection of The Gunslinger, but it's fleshed out. The drawing of the three is is fleshed out in such a stronger way. So more on that in a little bit, but once more, last sort of Nerdery on tarot. But I just gotta get it out, guys. So I should mention the Lady of the Shadows, the Prisoner, the Sailor, and the Card of Life, these are not real traditional tarot cards. So the most traditional deck out there is the Rider Waite, um, if you want to look that one up. all There's all kinds. There's like Celtic tarot, Egyptian tarot, there's a million different kinds, but um, those are not traditional major arcana. These are fictionalized by King. This is King's take sort of making his own tarot deck, which I absolutely love. I love love that he did that. Um, but this is kind of my, uh, let's just say I'm tossing a little bit of fish food into, uh, or rather I'm enticing the lobstrosities to come away from the, the waves and come to the shore. I'm enticing you, uh, tower junkies. I- I'm sure the passion for the tower is so strong that you guys have already done this. So if you've already done it, you know, no worries. Uh, Let me know what you found out basically. But if you're a tower junkie, I recommend looking up the major arcana in traditional tarot and read up on the ones that closely resemble the few that King has imagined. So I did that. I kind of got a lot out of it. It was a lot of fun. So for example, with the Lady of Shadows, I think... That one, of course, does not exist in real life, but the Empress card does, and the Star card does, and I think that that kind of aligns a little bit with the character of Deda. Um, and Odetta, uh, depending on which way you want to look at it, um, with the prisoner card, I definitely think Eddie fits more with the magician card or the devil card, which again sounds ominous, but it actually isn't when you look at the interpretations. Um, for He can also be the fool. So for Eddie, I saw three different tarot outcomes. I saw the magician, the devil, the fool, uh, all his potentials. And then with Jack Mort, our third, our third draw, I kind of saw him more as the justice or judgment cards. Something, uh, something that was not exactly a individual person tarot, but rather than a result. So that was kind of cool. But One thing I did know for sure is that all of these characters get the death card in their own way. All of them do, which is so fascinating. It blows my mind. They all get the death card. So. My guys, what I also realized about reading Drawing of the Three is I could dedicate an entire episode to just all the jam-packed tarot symbolism and comparisons, also the ancient mythology symbols we have in here, just, just so awesome, because these first people within Roland's quartet, uh, not only did they deserve the death card, but perhaps the wheel of fortune card, so I guess what I'm saying is if you're a tower junkie and you have not got your hands on a traditional tarot, deck. Uh, Let's do that. Let's do some nerding out um, because the tower is of course a real card in the traditional tarot uh situation there and it always means something bad so love to know your thoughts on that because you guys who have read uh this journey multiple times know a lot more about the tower than i do at this current time so the tarot card that is the tower is always dramatically not good so yeah just throwing that out there but um Uh, Before I just continue blabbing on about all this nerdy stuff, let's head into our next section and open up these three floating doors on the beach and I'll see you there. All right, friends, welcome, welcome to the stew pot where we're throwing in all things drawing of the three into one big great bowl. This is the unique observations about the novel. So we're going to have good, bad, great, ugly, weird, strange, all in the same spot before we segue into our three characters because I want to spend a lot of time on those. But I have four little categories inside this stew pot here today and we're going to start start with the first topic which is paging 1980s action movie. <laughs> okay guys. So what I mean by that is um upon making my way through some of the pivotal moments within drawing up the three I couldn't help but shake this vibe. Granted, also referring back to the fact that the publication of this novel was in 1987, so we've got, you know, King trucking along through this story in the late later 80s. Well, I noticed that we have a lot of connection to 1980s action movies, so hear me out. For those of you who are born way, way later than that, um, what I mean by 1980s action movie is truly a very particular title because, and granted you'll have to take my word on this if you haven't experienced them yourself, which I highly recommend you do. They're they're a little bit ridiculous, but very gratifying and fun in the same beat. But um, 1980s action movies, my friends, have some quintessential elements to them. So if ever you are on the hunt for where to even begin, uh, look up Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, a couple other gems, Dolph Lundgren. (laughs) Uh, There's some other of course action stars uh, sprinkled throughout but those are the main ones so 1980s action movies typically have incredibly bombastic fight scenes really violent uh graphic either injuries where you see a bone sticking out something that's just like really intensely violent very masculine lots of absolute roid rage muscle guys um Uh, for example, I think it was, was it 1984 or 85, um, Aliens, that one's super duper 80s action movie, Predator, these are, they are all soaked with masculinity, violence, a lot of explosions, so many explosions. And then there's usually some gratuitous nudity, (laughs) typically female nudity, and it's absolutely out of thin air. (laughs) So um, these are movies that were made by men for men, and you could definitely argue it uh, the other side as well. I would happily debate that with any of you. But um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of testosterone in these 1980s action movies, and I really get a lot of that. Very strong spoonfuls of that within drawing of the three. Specifically in the first part with Eddie, our prisoner, we encounter, or Roland rather, gets to New York City in the 80s. And of course, as we know, the reader, Eddie and his brother Henry are involved in uh, some pretty shady dealings. He's uh, in the drug smuggling world, which of course has mafia connections. And so we've got drugs, mafia, a huge shootout, um, a very odd sort of, uh, yeah, crazy fight scene some, ugh, there's blood and bullets, and so I really was like, oh man, this is such a 1980s action movie, of which we've got in the 80s, we had Scarface, we had other mob films, like these movies were violent, uh, really loud, and very masculine, and lots of blood and gore for the most part gratuitous nudity. The uh, women, of course, are scantily clad, beautiful, or you get the opposite where they're very tough and um, kind of like I'm referencing uh, Ripley Sigourney Weaver's character from the Alien franchise. So we would either have like the absolute um, sexy femme fatale or the ingenue who's just like gorgeous and half naked, you know, uh, very much like you would see in old school comic books where the women are beautiful and just all they're, they're just ready for sex at, at the drop of a hat. Um, and then the men are super muscular, um, big guns, big cars, big explosions. And, uh, we've come a long way for sure. But if you ever want to reference some of these, I recommend, you know, anything from 1982 to 19... 19- You're just going to get, wow, uh, lots of exactly what I'm talking about. But I noticed this throughout Drawing of the Three, guys, and I really feel that King was plugging in to that cinematic imagination with creating some of these action scenes, specifically the giant mafia shootout uh, with Balazar, which is the drug sort of kingpin that Henry and Eddie are caught up in, you know, um, Hetty's on... (laughs) Hetty. Henry is addicted to heroin. There's cocaine. There's just drugs everywhere. There's drugs absolutely everywhere. So heroin, cocaine, um, blood, gut score, nudity. um, And then we we see that quite a bit with Roland's injury. I'm going to get to um, that here in just a second. But we have some really bombastic loud, uh, explosive action scenes within Drawing of the Three, and I really feel it's the symptom of the time it was written. So uh, for those of you guys who have read this title a couple times, what do you think? Do you think that that works? Because that is the vibe I got 100%, especially in our various uh, step-ins to uh, New York City and just what a grimy place it was. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, New York City, uh Manhattan specifically, Times Square. Uh, All of those places used to be absolute slums. Um, uh, It wasn't until I would say like mid-90s, late 90s to the early 2000s where they started to really make it touristy and friendly and clean it up and, you know, make it very welcoming and hospitable to visitors. But if you guys didn't know, uh, New York used to be a hole. It used to be gross and full of trash and crime. It was very rough streets, lots of violence, uh, lots of drugs, um, lots of attitude, which is what we have a lot of, which is why Eddie is such a spectacular character because he is totally channeling that like fast paced, never relax, get out of my way, New York, um, spunk, which is so awesome. Like that really, um, kind of bratty, brash, but yet totally confident and owning himself kind of thing. More on Eddie in a little bit, but my first sort of little chunk there for all of you guys is if you reread Drawing of the Three, let's channel the 1980s action movies a little bit because I think it's fitting right in. All right, so my number two category in the stew pot is body extremity. And what I mean by this, guys, is King really puts our characters through absolute hell in this book, guys. Like, we have a lot of bodily harm and suffering of the physical. And that starts right away with Roland getting freaking attacked by lobster monsters, aka lobstrosities, who bite off his fingers and his toes. Uh, on one of his feet. And so he's just like uh, we just see so much suffering on Roland's side. He's has missing limbs, missing fingers and toes, which of course creates a terrible infection, fever, haze, hallucination. Then we jump over to our character Eddie who goes into full-on heroin withdrawal uh, once he gets through the door. So we see him just absolutely suffering. And then later on with Odetta and Detta in the same sort of body, you know, they're all exposed to the elements. They don't have shelter. They're just outside and she's not eating. She's just starving to death and they're baking in the sun. And it's, it's a very, very intense. And so I I feel that that is explored very well throughout. Um, for Roland, he's consistently throughout the novel a fraction of himself a little bit. I think he's in an altered state um, the duration of the novel. We have a little bit of reprieve when he gets some antibiotics in him, but it's not enough to fend off the infection. So we really see our characters very broken and wounded, and we see a little bit of them getting on their feet again, but for the most part, we're all suffering with them especially Detta and Odetta being in her body and they're also uh, later on in the novel we could get some fight scenes going down with lots of drama and choking and intense, intense suffering of the body. So I noticed that uh, immensely in in this novel, guys. Just all of our characters are really in a compromised state bodily. So um, I really enjoyed seeing that because that, that fiction adage, kill your darlings to see what they're made of, you know, putting your characters in a compromised state such as illness, extreme injury, extreme environment. This is going to bring out who they really are and thankfully we we do get to see a lot of good stuff out of these characters through that suffering but of course Odetta herself is actually disabled um in multiple ways. Uh, not only does she have a physical handicap of not having legs, so she's in a wheelchair, um, due to a terrible accident as a child, but then she also has a very, so I hesitate to call it a cognitive dysfunction or a cognitive disability because that's not exactly correct, but She does have an affliction of the mind and of the personality that was caused by not only a child injury, but love, let's say the wheel of God, perhaps, or the hand of fate that uh, allowed this to happen to Odetta. So we've got a lot of body extremity going on in Drawing of the Three, which I actually appreciated, especially knowing that Roland, he's our main guy, right? This is our second adventure with Roland. We are, you know, trusting him to lead the way and all of a sudden he is busted and broken. It's like, oh my God, now what? which is why I feel it was such a genius turn of King to sort of guide the reader's attention to the three, to these three doors. And they become incredibly uh, pivotal and powerful and definitely create a lot of curiosity and questions for me. So that's my number two point, Body Extremity. Let's uh, dive into number three. My third point is Fantastic visuals. Oh my gosh guys. Um one of the reasons I was several reasons uh that I loved drawing of the three is I really felt King was doing an awesome kick-ass job with description this time around. And maybe this could be because I'm still so very novice to the world of fantasy. So when I read fantasy it's it always is it's a new thing for me to to have this vivid imagination from the world building. I'm not used to it. And I, there is something so cool, my guys, about Roland at the beach after we have just read from the last chapter of The Gunslinger that he is, you know, uh, 10 years older having this mind-altering, uh, time-altering time with... Um, the man in black who he's been chasing and now he has this crazy huge prophecy. He's at the beach kind of planning the next step, the next path, figuring things out. And then there's this giant wooden door floating over the water. Like that just, it's so cool. It is just... If that were a painting, oh man, it was, it's incredible. You just, if you pause, if you press pause in your mind and just imagine the sea, the sky, our character Roland, and then this giant, beyond giant door floating. And it's, has something engraved in the wood, which are the very words that the man in black said. So I was just all about it. The visuals were fantastic. And then of course, shortly before that, we have a freaking crustacean attack. My God, we have a giant lobster, which I live in the Southwest of the United States. So there's not a lot of seafood out here. I like seafood in small amounts, but like, I I don't, I think I've had a lobster roll once or twice. I I think it's very delicious. I do like clob. clob. (laughs) I like crab and lobster, also known as clob, I guess. But um, I do like crab. I find it very sweet and delicious, and everything is delicious with melted butter, which is how the majority of Americans eat it. But with lobster, I I think I've had a lobster roll once, which I really enjoyed, but I'm very novice to it. I wouldn't know how to open one if it was put in front of me. Ergo, lobsters are very frightening when they're alive before they go into the pot. And I I feel terrible that they kind of scream in there in that hot boiling water, um, getting off track a little bit, but my God, guys, we have lobster monsters who are ginormous and King gives them their own kind of creepy language, which is very iconic and funny, like, jack, rah, rah, rah. like that was pretty great. But, uh, to know that they will eat you and they, in fact, do eat somebody alive like that is terrifying and I am glad that they are a food source for Roland and friends to hunt and so they can at least have adequate nourishment throughout their journey but my god like we've got lobster monsters we have the fantastical floating doors we have New York City in the 80s which we get to enter into at multiple points in the novel we also have uh, the 60s We have the South. We also have New York in the 60s. We have Odetta's Life, which is very posh and um, prim and proper, and yet very strange uh, when we spend some time in Odetta's mind and her world a little bit, but the visuals are fantastic. I also love Salazar, the sort of kingpin that Eddie and his brother Henry are involved in, that they meet up in a a tower of Pisa kind of location. And the descriptions are so on point, guys. We just have so much, so many strong visuals that really carried me. I I don't know why. I think it was because I knew the story's fantasy elements really started to develop in a stronger way. We start to really uh, dig some roots into the ground with the fact that like, okay, the gunslinger is a kind of an experimental stringing along of stories where we have this character Roland bumping and bouncing along these five loosely connected tales but then of course King just grabs all that sand at the end of the fifth chapter and then is like all right follow me now with this fantasy setting characters world that I want you to continue following these breadcrumbs with. And I really started to get that guys. I really, the visuals started to become incredibly powerful for me. The descriptions of our characters the um just especially the I don't know where we're at inside Roland's current place the world that has moved on the last location where Roland has met the man in black so of course I'm drawing a blank on where that exact location is but the sea and where we are there like that is such a a wide open patch of awesomeness in my brain where we are roaming into the hills there's mountains there's ocean there's time and uh portals lobster monsters like it really starts to take root for me with these fantastic visuals And then my number four. So this is my last point in this sort of stew pot uh, lobster bath, we can call it. Um, And this is going to lead us into our next section, which is going to be all about our characters. But the only aspect of drawing of the three that I wasn't crazy about, guys, and I, I just wanted to drop it here because it has to do with characters, is King does such a beautiful job with our main characters. I mean, Roland is fleshed out more, Eddie, Odetta, Dada, um, as well as Jack Mort. and But we have a lot of side characters, guys, like a lot. And these are people that just pop up like daisies and King just gives them a kind of side story. For example, it starts off right away when Eddie's on the plane trying to smuggle a vest full of cocaine. The flight attendant, all of a sudden, she's getting a little bit of backstory. She's inserting herself into Eddie's story. We have so many. We have in story, the jewelry store clerk, we have later on in the Jack Mort portion, the prisoner, or not the prisoner, in the pusher portion. We've got the gun salesman. We have buddy cops. We have a pharmacist. And I just don't care about them, guys. I don't. I... I go with it, um, but for me, it was like uh, I was so enjoying my time with our main characters that like I did not give a crap about anybody else. And I understand if King wanted to just broaden the scene with some extra bodies, but it's like, please don't deviate with narration. Like I don't want a point of view switch to these people, and that's what I would say. I wouldn't call it a weak portion of the novel because the novel is very strong it's written and uh it's got a lot of strength to it I will say that but like I really wish that some editing could have been done on these side characters that King gives a lot of screen time to like a lot of screen time I was following these buddy cops page after page after page you know some of the drug dealers some of the guys from Salazar's gang it was like I don't care. I I want to get back to our main three. So I uh, it's fine if you want to say that there was a pharmacist or there was a flight attendant and kind of just background noise on these people and side characters. You can maybe give them at most a paragraph, but like, don't give them dialogue. Like, what are you doing, Steve? I don't care. I don't care about these people. I care about Eddie and Odetta and... Oh, <laughs> and jack mort and uh the other citizens of new york in the 80s don't care really i i don't care for them and this is perhaps a unique thing for me as a reader just because i found myself really digging my heels into roland's story i was like oh man like these three and they're a part of his destiny and like wh- who are they what are they why are they like i was just going nuts uh trying to unpack all of the layers that each of these characters, each of the three represent, and how they're connected to the Man in Black's prophecy, that's where my mind was at. I was, I was miles away from these kind of dumb, flat, useless, unnecessary side characters, these just sort of background fodder people, where King just kind of goes on little tangents talking about, oh, the pharmacist hates his job and he hates his father for making him be a pharmacist. And it's like, Can we get back to Roland? Can we get back to Jack Mort? Can we get back to the island or the land we were at? I want to get back to the beach. What about the lobster monsters? What about Odetta and Detta and that giant mess? Like, that's who I cared about. And I feel if we would have edited down some of those characters, those side little things there, it just would have given us more time with our three, which is what I wanted because they're amazing. And the fact that this is connected to the Man in Black prophecy, you know, that's where my mind's at. I'm like, oh my god, like, these three are a part of Roland's destiny and... The tower, <laughs> and guess what? Um, Roland's gonna screw them all over to get to the tower, and they know it, and he knows it, and oh my god, oh my god, like the revelation of that is mind-blowing to me. And so, as I was making my way through the story, the narrative power that King was constructing completely overshadows these side characters, and they started to annoy me, guys. They did because there's so many of them, and I understand he's Building a world. He's building a contemporary 80s New York City. He's building, you know, these portal jumps, these people who have influenced our three. But I'm sorry, I was over it, guys. I was like, no, no more side characters. So I thought I would throw that out there and see what you guys thought. Maybe it's, maybe you don't mind at all because they're, they go through their phase in the novel pretty quick and then it's right back to or three or are any of you like myself and were kind of annoyed by the additional characters or I admit I might be too sensitive about it I might just be a little bratty about it I don't know, Um, because a lot of times when I meet tower junkies, they adore every single aspect of the tower novels. They have nothing negative to say. They're like, no, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's 100% the best thing I've ever read. And I was like, okay. So um, if I am offending anyone, of course, my apologies. But like, I, I don't know. I'm also concerned because if additional tower novels are like this... Maybe I need to go back and see these side characters with a different lens because maybe I need to pay attention. Because what would really blow my mind is if these side characters from Drawing of the Three pop up again in the later novels. That would blow me away. I would absolutely be flabbergasted if that's what happens. So, uh, if it is, <laughs> I will, uh, fall on my sword now and I will retract my statements and I'll go back and I will probably have a little bit more patience with these side characters, these B, B players in the, in the story. Because if, if that is in fact how this, journey unfolds, then I have some problems and I might have to remedy my reading a little bit. So you guys can let me know uh, if I need to maybe have a more accepting when it comes to these side people for the very fact that they're going to pop up again, which would greatly surprise me. Or maybe you felt the same way and you were kind of not into them as well. Uh, Yeah, let's talk about it. So those are my four. To recap, we have number one, paging the 1980s action movie. Number two, body extremity. Oh, we are busted and broken in this book. Number three fantastic visuals so many cool standout moments that I wish I wish there was a calendar of drawing of the three and I wish I could just have a lot of stills from the novel month by month and I could just frame them all at the end because there are so many beautiful moments and then lastly no side characters needed, Mr. King. Just a just a thought, just an idea. I felt there was a little too many, really didn't care about them. Wanted to get back to our 3 as quickly as possible so that's my four let's put the lid on this stew pot maybe we have a lobster boiling inside maybe not lobster stew anybody uh, that might be really good with uh, a nice sea bisque and perhaps some bread <laughs> um, so let's get that cooking and head into our next section which is the characters of drawing of the three This is the character section where we're going to explore the three drawings, the three doors and the most excellent character dissections that king puts in front of us on this second installment of the dark tower journey. So just a heads up, I'm going to be talking a lot about plot reveals with this character section. So if you have not yet read Drawing of the Three, let's go ahead and pause right now because I'm going to spoil quite a bit for you. So, uh I won't usual reveal too much in terms of exact specifics uh, resulting in somebody's exit from the novel or huge plot arcs, but I'm gonna do a lot of discussion and hinting. So just a heads up, be very cautious if let's say it's been a while since you've read the novel and you want to give it a fresh reread before you listen, totally fine. But this is the section of the episode that I'll probably spoil quite a bit for you. So just a heads up. So these characters, guys, these three doors two of them for the most part, uh, more on the third later, uh, were so fulfilling and meaty and enjoyable and I really felt like King was, well, he was doing his kingly best and that is being a whiz at creating dynamic, memorable, engaging characters. So we're going to start off first with our prisoner, the first door, and that is 23-year-old Eddie Dean in 1987, New York City. So when Roland um, first meets Eddie, he's in the fists of trouble, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. He is smuggling cocaine because it's the 80s, and that's just what everybody did. So he is caught up in that fast life and Eddie is a huge heroin addict, which is devastating and sad, and I do take it pretty seriously when I see it in fiction because addiction is one of those terrible ugh, contemporary life things that more people than you realize have to deal with. But uh, Eddie manages to keep it light and silly and charming because he's just this, this kid caught up in big problems, but he's he's managing to be really high-strung and dramatic, but yet strangely comedic about the whole thing. So... Eddie is a real uh, breath of fresh air to this novel, I think he's just, he brings that youth and wild mischief um, that's kind of childlike, probably because he is such a mess, he's such a dramatic mess, and uh, but yet brings the silliness and the one-liners, um. but what I really enjoyed most about Eddie was the grounding force of his character, which was his older brother Henry so henry unfortunately meets a very tragic end in the story and eddie's pretty close to him when it happened it was pretty violent hence what i was talking about in the last section paging the 1980s action movie like when henry exits the novel my god that is like quintessential 80s ridiculous over-the-top violence but I couldn't help but think about the Hearts in Atlanta story collection because Henry was a a soldier in Vietnam and came back with a heroin addiction, which many, many, many soldiers did. Super heartbreaking. But what I also love is we get to see King's character complexity because he not only makes Henry, you know, someone who's struggling with heroin addiction, who unfortunately draws his little brother into that life. But we also read that Henry was incredibly prim and proper and stylish, fashionable. He was professional. He was sharp. He took his tailoring and pressing of clothes and he always was very serious about his appearance and he seemed to be a kind of guy who understood that like a freshly shaven man with clean pressed clothes was gonna go far in the world. And I loved that because Eddie got to see that from his brother and got to see those good parts about his brother who was adult. He was his brother was very adult and manly, strong, um, and decent in a lot of ways. And so it it really makes the ultimate outcome of his brother Henry very tragic. But uh, I'm excited for what Eddie is going to bring to this story, guys, because you can't... At first, Eddie's a little... He's just... He's like a little... um, I, I don't know why. I was just thinking about like a little cute little guinea pig or a mouse where he's just, he's young and dumb and he's in this big trouble. He just gets into these sticky situations. And yet, you know, when he goes back to All World, I believe it's called, I might be wrong on that, please don't kill me tower Chunkies. but wherever the beach is, the western sea where they first go through the door, when he goes back with Roland, there's this very humbling withdrawal time when both Roland is super sick, infection, fever, his injuries, and then poor Eddie is like full-on heroin withdrawal, which had to be hell. Poor Eddie, my god. Like, it's amazing he didn't, you know, have a seizure and die out there because that is extreme. But I really enjoy Eddie's character and I uh, start to... I'll get to this in the next section, but when it comes to his bond with Odetta, so more on that in a little bit, but I'm very excited for the kind of... Person Eddie becomes in this book because when we meet him he's just this high high stress super anxious live wire of a little New York street kid who's just one big ball of anxiety and craziness and mischief but yet deep love for his brother uh deep you know just just like a streetwise little bratty kid who's tremendously funny and charming even though you know he's kind of annoying at the same time there's just so much to like about Eddie and I like that Roland's like this stern serious cowboy and he's pretty charmed by Eddie too and has to kind of yell at him like hey um do what I say before you get shot So I was immediately uh, smitten with what King was doing with the character of Eddie Dean. And then once he and Roland, Eddie and Roland are in the same place, kind of suffering together. And then you really see this kind of quiet, subtle maturity with Eddie. And I think it's just maybe the healing process of his body, of his mind, that he's no longer under the influence of of smack like um it's it's very possible um but that's what i observed that's what i observed is just kind of this either maturity of being outside in the elements he's no longer in the city anymore he's just far away from all life the only life he's ever known and he's just with roland now and so there's a really big shift in eddie's character very blank canvas by the end um aside from uh our next character who is huge my guys oh my god this next character blew me away as I'm sure she did all of you. And that is our second number two, the Lady of Shadows, Miss Odetta Holmes slash Detta Walker slash Susanna Dean. Oh my God, guys. Okay. So, oh wow. Um, this woman. So firstly, the chunk of text that I read from the gunslinger in the first chunk of this episode I felt was so powerful and revealing because the man in black calls it. He kind of already calls that this Lady of Shadows is gonna be uh something bananas. Like this is a two faced lady, this is a this is two people in the same body. So meeting meeting Odetta, which took me a minute. I was, I'm kind of questioning King's, <laughs> d- why, I mean, uh, why did he have the name so close together? Um, I think it's a little confusing at first, but after, you know, a couple chapters, you get it the difference between Odetta and Detta. But mm-hmm. Odette Holmes is a really layered character, guys, and there's so much to say about her. Like she is one of the women in King, in the world of King that I think I could teach an entire class period on. Like she is that layered and complex and this lady, wow. Like she is somebody who I want to follow in the next book. I am very curious about this lady and the before I start talking about her individual character uh this is just throwing this out there this question for the tower junkies out there so in the gunslinger I don't remember exactly which chapter it might be the first one when Roland's at the village of Tull there's like a faint memory of a Susanna of a but was it Susanna or a Susan Yes, I think it was a Susan. So maybe I'm getting off track because I think I, if it was a Susan Delgado then that's somebody different, which, damn it, Steven, like, why do you have to confuse me with these similar names? Okay. So if it's Susan Delgado, that's somebody totally different. But for a second, I was like, was that Susanna he was talking about that like burned or died from smoke inhalation or somebody who was burning to death? Probably a Susan Delgado. So I won't, I'll just answer that question myself, but, um, at first, I was like, "Wait a minute! Is there some crazy time stuff going on where, like, there this incarnation of Susanna Dean was this other Susan?" I'm, I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Which is this is why uh, fantasy is often a challenge for me, folks, because I go, I spin out of control with theories and thinking. But anyway, so we first meet Odette. <sighs> homes. Um, In the 1960s, she's living a pretty privileged life in New York City. She has her very own driver who cares about her a great deal. She's got money in the bank with wealthy parents, and yet she is uh, a freedom fighter. She's uh, attending protests and demonstrations in the South. And she is a black woman who is making her voice heard. Not only is she a black woman, she's also a disabled woman. As we find out, she has, she's a double amputee. She does not have lower, the lower halves of her legs due to a terrible injury. And then on top of that, guys, another triplet here. Um, In addition to this aspect of her character, she also has a dissociative personality. I I don't know if we could use the DSM um, definition for this because I think it's supposed to be fantastical, but there's another entity living inside Odetta and taking over her. So really two people. So I don't know if it's... Uh, here in this sen- in this time, we could definitely uh, follow the route to a psychological diagnosis for what Odetta has. But looking at what King was looking at in the 1980s, late 1980s, I think that it's safe to just kind of explore this as like something mysterious fantastical and evil that has happened to this woman that has caused this secondary entity presence darkness to take root inside of her and so she has a alternate personality multiple personalities um so that's uh that's what that's what this lady's got. This uh, this Odetta Holmes lady, this tremendously lovely, um, financially well off, very privileged woman with a good heart for social causes. But yeah, she's got quite a lot, quite a lot on her plate that we get to know. And so her parts in this novel, guys, are, they blew me away. The writing is incredible and stellar and However, (laughs) reading some of the big chunks from this alternate entity known as Detta Walker, um, she has a very big spotlight in this novel, guys, and it's shocking at first. Detta is absolutely in-your-face troublemaker, and it's very much like if you were to witness, like, a live demon possession, like, Dana Walker gets pretty close in terms of just, like, can, we'll not shut up. This lady, it's nothing but, like, foul, crass, embarrassing, relentless, mockery, teasing, filthy jokes, um, (laughs) insults, and there are some, after a while, I was laughing, and I- I couldn't help it. I mean, she calls Eddie and, um, persistently, uh, like goads and chides, uh, Eddie and Roland by calling them gray meat. I don't know why I found it funny, but after a while it was hilarious. And I, you know, I kind of feel bad for laughing because I don't know if Detta Walker's sort of demonic rants age as well as they should, could. Um, there's, there's just a lot of racist stuff in there. There's a lot of, you know, sexual innuendo that's really crass. And, um, yeah. So uh, there's a lot of racial stuff in there that I don't think, uh, works as, as in the 21st century. Um, so it's a little, I found myself laughing, Inappropriately, so just because some of her insults are are ridiculous, and the person like gray meat had me dying. She's just calling them like rotted lunch meat over and over again, which made me laugh so much. So Detta is just, uh, she is so bombastic and wild. And it's very sad at some points when once she's in the same place as Roland and Eddie, that like poor Odetta's body is starting to suffer because detta won't eat food. She thinks that she's going to be poisoned by Roland and Eddie. She thinks just all of this stuff. So she's kind of like wasting away there, which is... Uh, sad. And that's where we see that second or third example of body extremity that I talked about in the last section is just this willing starvation, this terrible victimization that Odetta has to endure because Detta has taken over her body, which is just wild and crazy. But Detta is most definitely the loudest, craziest, zaniest, most frightening portion of this book, in addition to Jack Mort, who's coming up next. But um, I was very glad to see that, um, Detta. Dada- I, don't, I hope she doesn't come back I don't think she will given the final outcome of Odette's character at the end of this story but I'm hoping she doesn't because after a while she's so exhausting she's an exhausting character presence she's absolutely just a wild ride for sure but like after a while she's just the the mischief she causes the problems um the pain the suffering the just psychosis the mania it's it's raining After a while, you're just like, oh my gosh, this lady, you just got to go. You are too much. So lastly, in the very, this is a very sort of barely touched upon thing, but um, we have a third entity that comes forth that seems to be the um, reigning figure. Basically, I, it, if I'm understanding this correctly, Uh, Toward the end of the novel regarding Odetta's character, Detta and Odetta kind of have a, they have a face-off, they have like this confrontation, and then this other person who I think is like the best of both, or rather Odetta- to the tenth power, Odetta at full power and capacity, and that's Susanna Dean. So this is this is very new, and I I hope it is greater explored in the next installment. But what blew me away, guys, is that For those of you who don't know, I do like to kind of connect Stephen King's works to greater symbols in mythology, in religion, all that kind of stuff. So I was thinking about, and I was just touching upon it. I was doing a little bit of research on the goddess, the Greek goddess Hecate. H-E-C-A-T-E. If you guys want to research her on your own a little bit more. So the reason why I was thinking about Hecate is because this. This is a goddess who has three female forms in one. It's very much like our girl Susanna Odetta-detta, <laughs> which is so much fun. We should make a band name and that'll be our band name. Um, so Hecate, uh, she, she of course, this is just the, her Greek name is Hecate, but Roman name, Mesopotamian name, there's all kinds of stuff, uh, all different names. But Hecate is combined with the Mother Maiden Crone, which you guys might have heard if you are Game of Thrones fans. But she is a goddess that is typically associated with uh, witchcraft and pagan uh, pagan uh, celebrations, but typically female witchcraft, in which you know um, fertility rituals, um, celebrating the seasons. Uh, female witches typically please don't kill me if I'm getting this wrong. I am all about education. So if I'm getting any Hecate details wrong um, for for you witch ladies and gentlemen out there, please educate me and write into the show. I will be happy to amend any of my screw ups at this time. But from what I read and from what I know from other uh, witchy woo programming that I greatly enjoy is that Hecate is really beloved and venerated um, according to a female cycle of life, especially usually because we are connected to the lunar cycle, all kinds of stuff. But here's what blew me away, guys. And here's where I really started, started to connect Susanna, Detta, Odetta, or how did I say it previously? Susanna, Odetta, Detta. <laughs> um, this is when I started to really think that I was onto something here because I was looking up Hecate and this three-in-one goddess, and here's where I nerded out. This is from Wikipedia, and it says, Hecate is a goddess of boundaries. She is associated with borders, city walls, doorways, crossroads, and by extension, with realms outside or beyond the world of the living. She appears to have been particularly associated with being between, and hence is frequently characterized as a liminal goddess. Hecate is a goddess to help avert harmful or destructive spirits from the house or city over which she stood guard and to protect the individual as she or he passed through dangerous liminal places. Hecate would naturally become known as the goddess who could also refuse to avert the demons or even drive them on against unfortunate individuals. Individuals. Oh my God, guys! Did you hear that? Borders, city walls, doorways, and in between. Oh my God! I know it's a it's a stretch, and I know that it could definitely be a a, a thread, <laughs> a really wild hair, an outlier, a definite deviation, and maybe King didn't realize he was tinkering with this kind of uh triplicate goddess stuff but there's something to it there's something to it at least for me um this dark goddess the mother maiden crone I think we could probably see that a little bit in Susanna Odetta Detta um a little bit granted I think that I don't know much about Susanna Dean yet, um, but it seems to me like there is a lot of love for Mr. Eddie. So uh, yeah, I think that we could explore this a little deeper. So for any of you tower junkies wanting another level to explore, I wonder if the goddess Hecate uh, is somebody who is maybe a, a serendipitous symbol for the character of Odetta because uh, we've got a lot of duality. We've got <laughs> we've got this triple this triple entity inside, but yet I don't exactly know for sure, but it seems like the triple might have been for just a temporary chunk of time and then now it's just Susanna who's going to be inside the body of Odetta. I'm not sure. So, I still have a lot of questions, which I will address in the next section. But I was bugging out, as they say in the East Coast of America. I was bugging out when I was thinking about this connection of the goddess Hecate, the mother maiden crone, this liminal border goddess who is protecting, but at the same time, she can Definitely do some damage if you asked her to. So we've got that duality. We've got the the mother protector. We have the vengeful warrior. Um, we have someone who's going to be extremely loyal to a coven or an individual witch. Who's going to relish worship and celebration and the lunar cycle, but this border protection. And then the other thing that I thought was wild is apparently she's associated with dogs. Um, So, dogs, of course, in the Greek mythology, Cerberus, the three headed dog, prevented uh, souls from exiting the afterlife as well as protecting living souls from entering the underworld to see Hades and his forced bride. Persephone, the king and queen of the underworld. They had a giant, beyond giant, three-headed dog. If you're a Harry Potter fan, it's in the first Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. But Cerberus is a three-headed beast. We have Hecate, a three-in-one goddess. So three, 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 three. my guys, the symbolism is just off the charts. It's so cool. So I'm so curious to find out if the three inside of Odetta. However, I think I have to call her Susanna now. I think. I think that we've now, at the end of this story, reached a new thing. So... I wonder if Odetta and Detta just kind of canceled each other out and are vanquished forever and Susanna is sort of the reigning supreme and she's the head, she's the, you know, the now the head of this body of uh, the best of Odetta and Detta. I'm still a little iffy on that. So you tower junkies can supplement my reading if I miss something. I was, there was a lot going on in the moments when this confrontation happened between Detta and Odetta and then the the birth slash arrival of Susanna it was so wild and crazy and cool and coinciding with lots of stuff happening in New York City so I'm very well might have missed something but the three-headed dog Cerberus the three-in-one Greek goddess Hecate this three three triplicate um female uh, <laughs> trio inside of Odetta slash Susanna, who I'll, I'll just call her Susanna from now on, uh, blew me away. Guys, the the richness of lore, and I don't know, I have no idea if King was a studier of any of this. It's probably extremely coincidental. I have no idea. If you guys know of any external inspiration that allowed for the creation of uh, Susanna Odetta, let me know um, because because I am so interested in this. This female character, characters, is one of the wildest, coolest things I've seen in King's World yet when it comes to females in King, So I'm extremely excited to observe um, what happens with Susanna in the next few books. And I'm really curious because I've had so many Tower fans in my life. Tell me about, I think it's the sixth book. It's called Song of Susanna. Am I right? Is she, is that her? Or is that a descendant, perhaps, like Susanna Jr.? I have no idea, but I'm excited, guys, because this lady blew me away. She was absolutely wild and she is somebody who I would 100% give this book a second read just to study the craziness of what King is creating with this three in one character. So the Lady of Shadows is by far my favorite. She's my absolute favorite inside drawing of the three. She's, oh, she blew me away. And especially these connections I made. Granted, you know, it's a stretch, but I'm enjoying it. So what do you guys think? Do you think hecate and susanna is that a thing do you think or if you know of another goddess out there if there's another pagan deity another um Roman or, oh gosh, what's the other ones? Sumerian. (laughs) Let's go way back, guys. Uh, Anybody who's taking Western civilizations, everybody who, anyone who knows any other African goddesses, uh, let me know. Do you, is there somebody out there that's close to this three-in-one gatekeeper? Because holy crap, I'm excited. So the Lady of Shadows is number one out of my character uh, fandom in Drawing of the Three, followed by Eddie Dean, and then next, let's explore, albeit quickly, our third card, the third door, the pusher, and that is Creepy Creepy Creeperson, uh, Jack Mort in 1977, New York City. And this is where it gets a little wild, guys, because with our first two characters, Eddie is just a wild, eccentric, magical delight of comedic relief and silliness and zaniness. Um, Odetta slash Susanna odetta Dada. <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously having way too much fun with what I've created there. Susanna O'Dadadada is um, an absolute roller coaster um, and so layered, complex, intriguing, absolutely nutballs. And then we have a villain, like a full-on creepy serial killer guy who, for any of you Dead Zone folks out there, do you remember Mr. Dodd? I think it was Alfred. I think it was Al something, either Alfred Dodd or Alan Adam. Please forgive me. I just know it was an A, Dodd. Um, Inside the Dead Zone, he was the strangling rapist serial killer that was terrorizing Castle Rock until uh, Johnny got on the case and helped but uh yeah so Jack Mort is gross and terrible and a sadist and murderer. And uh, likes to inflict a lot of harm by dropping bricks on people from extremely high heights and uh, ruining their lives, which he is, of course, connected to the Odetta-Detta split as Odetta as a young baby, as a five-year-old, I believe, was victim to Jack Mort's brick, which makes me just so murderous with rage that a child was harmed that way. But Jack is disgusting and he is creepy. And Roland, um, we find out that Jack is extremely connected to Roland's personal journey as he, and not necessarily the man in black, and here's why I have some questions, more on that in the next section. He is, in fact, the entity that pushed young Jake Chambers in front of the taxi in which Jake was run over, killed, and then appeared in the way station, which is the second or third um, story inside of the gunslinger. I think it's the second, I think. And so there's a lot going on here. So uh, yeah, we... Have to work with this guy, which is so unenjoyable because, um, you know, for the most part, uh, Odetta's pretty cool. She's, you know, there's some things there, but she's mostly good, and Eddie's a good guy. And now it's like, okay, like this is a full on, um, this is a big twist of fate here because this guy is terrible and bad. Um, but Roland is able to accomplish much with this third person, Jack Mort. Um, I I don't feel we get as much development with Jack Mort. It seems like King just made him the last... He might have been running out of gas a little bit, I'm not sure what you guys think, but I just feel, okay, um, this is a bad guy, in which King is making him uh, irredeemable. From my reading, I don't remember seeing any parts to Jack Mort's character where I was like, oh, I feel bad for you. Um, or this is this is some nuance that I can incorporate into your villainy, or I'm going to maybe consider this suffering you faced as a reason why you're a heinous, sadistic murderer. I, I didn't really find any of that. It seemed like King might have been uh, eager to finish the book or eager to put Roland in front of preventing the past from happening which kind of sounds funny coming out my mouth but um basically it's it's a very action packed scene uh when we are in the company of Jack Moore Roland kind of takes over he is in his mind and body And it's mostly Roland who's kind of uh, just trying to get medicine, trying to get ammunition. We've got the side characters in there that I told you about in the last section that I do not care for at all. Really wish they could have been toned down or edited down. Definitely the volume turned down on a lot of them because I really just wanted to get back to... um, uh walker craziness who's choking Eddie to death. I really wanted to get back there um, once Jake is in the clear and we kind of have that showdown. Um, I was, I was a little hungry for more in terms of who Jack Mort was as, yes, he was, you know, the villain who is responsible for Jake's death, but I think that's all that King did with that. I feel like there could have been more. Um, But maybe he ran out of gas and just made Eddie and Susanna the stars because they are really jam-packed with all kinds of wonderful layers. So maybe King was like, "Eh, I'm kind of over it because in the Jack Mort scenes, it's just a fast-paced thrill ride through New York City. There's so much going on. There's a lot of side characters which take up too much screen time, in my opinion. Um, And we see Jack Mort's, you know, evil. We see him doing heinous things. We see him harming people. We get a little bit of his really gross thought process that's, you know, incredibly depraved. I was just hungry for more nuance or, um, for example, I always refer Norman Daniels a little bit of Rosematter because he is disgusting. He's so gross. But King, uh, more than once throughout the Rosematter novel, alludes to a uh, pretty persistent and consistent sexual abuse. In Norman's life from his father, super icky, really gross. But he references that so that way you have a little bit more nuance to juggle Norman's horrifying acts. It doesn't really work, however, because Norman Daniels is a human Cujo. Um, we're done with that tangent. But uh, I feel I think more of that could have been done for Jack Mort's character a little bit. Uh, I would have wanted a little bit more uh, of a look into what could potentially make him redeemable in the tiniest way. Maybe he has a sick mother upstate who he sends cash checks to, or um, maybe he volunteers at a soup kitchen. I, I don't know. Like, something to balance out the evil, because Jack Moore, as far as we know, is just gross and... I don't know if I'm missing something to wear the man in black. Is this an avatar from the, for the man in black? Is this someone who... There was a lot of gray area for me um, with the Jack Moore chapter, guys. And I probably need some Tower Junkie help on this in case I did miss something. Because it's an action thrill, wa- thrill ride with Roland running around the city trying to save Jake, trying to get back to um the place where eddie is because all this stuff and then thankfully jack mort you know gets some nice street justice and is uh, his exit from the story is pretty dramatic and cool and cinematic which is good because he's a trash bag murderer and we don't want anything to do with him anymore but uh, yeah, he was just a bad guy, an irredeemable villain. And so when I look at the three altogether, I understand Jack Mort's presence, his necessity, but I was kind of hungry for more because I thought, okay, the three, the three, the three must be the, the catet. Like that's who's going to, the three people who are going to be with Roland on his quest for the tower. And so now I, but then again, so now I'm wondering... I should save this for my next section, which is going to be questions, but so, I uh, maybe it's not Jack Mort and maybe, well, obviously it's not Jack Mort, but like, is it? So anyway, <laughs> to round out this section, Eddie Dean is tremendous and wonderful. And I'm really excited to see him mature more. And, um, especially with his feelings for Odetta slash Susanna, we shall see. And then, oh man, uh, Susanna Odetta-detta is as cool as they can get. And I really want to take the time to sift through her chapters in a deeper way because I am blown away by what King is doing. And then Jack Mart was kind of a meh for me, guys. He kind of reminded me a lot of Alfred or Mr. Dodd from The Dud Zone, who is just, you know, a terrible bad guy who we want dead right away. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of wishing more could have been done with that. But those are our three with honorable mention to our Lobstrosities, who <laughs> are the first mention of lobster monsters, which are apparently a cultural larger than life kind of thing. So uh, yes, cool monsters. Good job there, King. So let's talk about our final section. Let's head there right now where I have some Uh, concluding questions, observations, and uh, my request for assistance from all of you. I'll see you there. Alright folks, we have reached my last section of exploring the second Dark Tower novel, Drawing of the Three. So thus far we've kind of been all around the world in a very loose goose examination of this crazy, wild, wonderful, extra special iteration of the Dark Tower journey. This feels like a very cool episode. Uh, a very cool, completely new, fresh, so much stronger than The Gunslinger, but yet taking the best parts of The Gunslinger and just revving up the brightness, which I so, so appreciated. So I just want to take this section to go over some final thoughts that I have on the book, including some questions I have. Um, and one of them is, is particularly associated with the relationship between Eddie Dean and the now Susanna, um, formerly Odetta Holmes and Detta Walker. So I guess... So here's the thing. I am a sucker for romance, guys. I absolutely love romance in novels, good fiction novels, and the reason why that is is because uh, as a fiction teacher there is something quite magical when you develop a character that's believable enough, strong enough, when they start to stand on their own, when they've got all of this nuance and just they're absolutely living and breathing in the world the fictional reality of the reader and then you give them desires of the heart and then they connect with another human and all of a sudden this bond between these human beings is just magical it's just magical it's that's the thing that people write about like with the book hangover like when the story ends and you're still thinking about this character's journey and one of the deepest parts of that is the love and romance connection whether it be marriage, commitment, children like it's absolute magic and you know of course it's magic because that's what all of us want in the real world in this you know human suit world earth school that's what we're all trying for is love and human companionship and meaning and purpose and offspring and all the things. Magic. Um, so I love romance in a good fiction. However, I'm not a reader of romance since I was a teen, um, because I I like it to not be the focal point of the book. I like it to be a wonderful surprise in the book. So I was thrilled that all of a sudden, oh my God, like Eddie likes Odetta. Like this is great. However, my guys, I just wish it was done a little differently because it's too fast. It's too soon. And I wanted to know if you guys agree because I am all about giving lots of slack for love and attraction and all those little romantic flower bud sproutlings between two characters. I'm all about it and I'm always ready to give a lot of slack, even if it's a little clunky. But unfortunately, uh the speed at which it happens, I don't know if a King gave us enough runway for that. Um how so so I'm struggling with it. I, I don't think I hate it because I love romance so much, and I'm really excited that they're gonna get together. And they did have some genuine sweetness. There was like that part with them talking to each other under the stars. I was like, oh my god. I was all about it, guys. I'm a sucker. I have a little uh, fluffy rabbit heart that is extremely moved by genuine human romance. Um, I I loved it. However, in the back of my mind, I couldn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to because it kind of seemed like um, why did Eddie, why, it just seems so immediate that Eddie was just like, I love you. And like, Eddie is like a 23 year old little dirtbag from the city streets. Like he's, he's still coming off of heroin withdrawal. And so, and he's also seen the worst of, he's seen Detta. Dada, monstrous, maniacal psychopath Detta for days and days and days and days. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I love Odetta. And so a part of me was like, oh man, I want to love this, but I can't. So my, you know, and then all of a sudden we meet Susanna Dean and I'm like, Dean, Dean. Okay. Uh, great. So is this just a unique Dark Tower thing, guys? And what I mean by this is, am I just supposed to suspend disbelief that the drawing of Eddie and Susanna is fate or the ka? It's ka that they are brought forth into Roland's world because they are part of his purpose to get to the Tower... You know, am I just supposed to hang up my <laughs> my reality and just kind of say, "Welp," these two were picked out of their times, out of their worlds, out of their cities and lives because they're supposed to be together and they're supposed to be gunslingers on Roland's journey. And I'm just supposed to like embrace Ka? Is that what I'm supposed to do? And by the way, am I understanding Ka correctly? It means destiny, right? Does it mean destiny? (laughs) I hope it means destiny. I think it does. I'm pretty sure it means destiny or fate or... Um, and then the quartet I think I'm observing is like your destiny gang, your, the group of people who are supposed to be with you on your quest. So. Am I just supposed to let all that go and embrace this romance between Susanna and Eddie? Um, Because I can if I knew that that's what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) So I know that I'm asking for a little bit of cheat sheet stuff here. I'm asking for a little bit of help understanding these character bonds, but it's only so that I don't nitpick where I shouldn't nitpick because right now I'm nitpicking at the fact that I don't feel King did this romance connection correctly in terms of we don't have enough time to see that blossom between the two of them. It's pretty soon after Odetta finally wrangles Detta. She finally gets control of her own body. She's eaten some scallops. She's feeling good. And then Eddie's swiftly like, I love you. And it's like, what? Um, Granted, they've been outside a long time. There could be exposure to the elements. You know, he's kind of a newer person post-heroin withdrawal. He's, you know, a thousand miles in between space and time, uh, that probably millions and different planet i don't know where we are um from from where he his life was in the 80s and i so i can't i can do it i can suspend my disbelief and just let it go and be like oh it's destiny it's just destiny they came through the doors they're supposed to be together and so he just naturally loves her and that's and she loves him back and that's just the thing and i'm just gonna shut up about it and go forward I can totally do that. However, um, I'm looking at the text and I'm looking at the writing. And so what I've got from the section of drawing of the three uh, with this connection, it's way too fast. So if I'm just looking at it like an unbiased spectator, I'm like, this isn't gelling. This is not, this is too fast. We don't really, there's, there's just, this is out of nowhere. This is out of left field. So I did want to ask all of you about whether or not I need to suspend my disbelief and just let this go. (laughs) Or if I did in fact misread something in the text and maybe there was some more um, ruminations from Eddie in his mind, because I do know that he was attracted to her. I do know he expressed attraction to, to Odetta when he first, you know, kind of meets her and stuff like that when she first sort of arrives I remember that and I was like okay that could be something but for full-on love from this little young man I yeah I I that's my thing there so uh yeah observations, questions, and uh, a request for assistance from the Dark Tower community, if you would be so kind, Uh, in regards to the now Susanna. And it seems like because she has taken his name, that means to me that Odetta, when battling or facing down Odetta. Clearly Odetta's heart's desire was to be with Eddie in that romantic way, to the point where this new incarnation, which is like full on, seems from what I can tell from the reading, seems to be like the the white light rather than the darkness of Odetta Detta. It seems to be like the strongest parts of Odeta come to life, manifested. So the fact that we now have Susanna Dean seems like okay like this was Odetta's heart's desire to be with Eddie to take his name to be his companion wife maybe I don't know So there's that. Um, I, yeah, so I'm just sort of trying to piece together things and at the same time not spiral out of control with my own curiosities because I also know I have to just read the next book and that'll probably explain a lot more perhaps. Um, but, uh, the other thing is this, this ending part. So, I think this is just my overall general curiosities from The Tower, which was revealed to the reader in the last chapter of The Gunslinger, where, uh, oh my god, Uh, so The Tower is this incredibly immense, beyond human comprehension, this, oh god, how do I even articulate the amazingness of The Tower? It's, holding reality together. Reality across time and space, all planets, all galaxies. Like this is, it's encapsulating all life and time. Yeah. So, but it seems like Roland is now full-on consumed with the fact that the tower is his destiny in some way. He's got to get there, and once he found out what it was, he, like, wants it even more, even though the man in black kind of said, like, pursuing the tower, you're just pursuing your own death, you're pursuing your own insanity, you're just pursuing your own, um, end to, to, yeah, to put it succinctly, but yet, um, Roland seems unshakably sewn in to the fact that he's got to get there. These people are a part of his quest to get there. But yet there's this really fascinating, and this is what blew the book up for me in terms of this is such a wild concept to wrangle, guys, is it was very much like this Judas thing happening um, that King was kind of toying around with the narration at the end saying, you know he would lose them to the tower he would let them go and let them he would they would i don't remember i should have had the exact quote with me i'm failing in, in that regard right now but he alludes to the fact that he's going to let them die for the tower and that's going to be how it's going to be. And that blew me away, guys. That just blew me away because we have had this entire novel of, like, getting to know these people and everybody's super close at the end, um, minus a little bit of weirdness between, or not yet, not necessarily weirdness, but not yet fleshed out bond between Susanna, Roland kind of thing. But, like, the Eddie-Roland bond is pretty strong by the time we reach the last pages of the story. And so there's just this this realization uh from the mind of roland that like all right these are the people i have drawn and they will help me get to the tower and uh if they die they die because i'm getting to the tower and uh yeah so sad that these guys are gonna die on my way to the tower and so that just blew my mind and it really solidified that like oh shoot, um, (laughs) uh, Roland's in it to win it, no matter who is involved. And that's quite tragic early on. That's tragic guys. Cause you know, you would think in these deeply bonding situations where these people are following their, their entire lives are wrapped up in each other, entire lives, very similar to the walking dead, you know, the AMC series, Where you've got the sheriff, Rick, and you've got all these people who are family traveling to, from town to town just trying to survive and we have that same vibe here with Roland and his folk and yet it seems pretty understood almost maybe not yet quite with Eddie but like Eddie gets it like you got to get to the tower okay and he's kind of on board with what it is not not quite at least from where um from what I gathered from the text and so it's like okay so uh, Roland is legit gonna let these people die, just like he let Jake die. Whew, okay. And so it's like, that's a tall order. And if I knew that, <laughs> if I was chosen to be a part of Roland's little posse here, his quartet, I would be like, you can take a long walk off a short pier, Roland, my guy. Like, I'm out. I'm outskies. Bye. Like, uh, no. Why... Why am I going to sacrifice my life if you wouldn't do the same for me? That's that's not true friendship, my buddy. So I'm I'm learning some things here, guys. I'm learning things about the character of Roland that I saw a little bit of in the gunslinger regarding his treatment of Jake, the way he just like, yep, Jake Jake even knew it too. He told him as he was falling. There are other worlds than these. Like, granted, Roland Roland did wrestle with it a little bit. He was torn, which I'm glad to see he was torn a little bit. And he even did allude to the fact how hard it's going to be to let these people go, Eddie and Susanna and this, this bond that they have but he still was pretty matter of fact to the reader that he would do it. And that's intense, my guys. And I could not help but return to my Lord of the Rings vibes um, that I got in all over the place in the Gunslinger, where the One Ring is the all-consuming source of power and obsession for everybody hobbit and king and dwarf and elf and and everybody is seduced by its power even though it is pure evil. And so I don't know enough about the dark tower at this time to uh associate it to the one ring in terms of, you know, absolute evil because I I just think it's probably neutral. It's just the source of all power really. But I do think it's got to be a little evil if Roland is just legitimately going to let his days fade into ruin where he loses all the good people in his life in pursuit of it. So uh, probably I've just, you know, uh, rustled up a bunch of hornets that are Dark Tower fans. Not necessarily that you guys are angry with me, but you guys will probably just tell me to keep reading because I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot more in the next installment. Um, but I, and then maybe I did misread. I, that is always possible because this was an easy book to have a lot of questions with because where I started... With Gunslinger, I had like a million and one questions. And now with Drawing of the Three, I feel like I have two million and one questions. But with that final sort of chunk of Roland looking at Susanna, looking at Eddie, and kind of saying, yep, it's going to suck when they die out of my way, or when they're, you know, exit my my story because I'm getting to the tower, it just gave me the One Ring vibes that we see in Tolkien's masterpiece of being this ultimate source of obsession, doom, downfall, and consumer of souls, such as with um, sweet baby Frodo Baggins. He was altered forever after his mission of carrying the ring, just forever, forever altered. And um, one of the reasons he went into the West. And so I just got that vibe hardcore in terms of what the tower is to those who pursue it. And that this is a one way bullet train to love and life lost and that was a very sobering note at the end of this story my guys so i guess my question to all of you as i yammer on and on and on um is if i'm understanding this correctly in terms of the Tower and Roland's journey or if there's more nuance to it than that that I'm that I might have missed or that I will probably get in later novels I yeah and so now my guys I'm really curious that what's gonna happen because now Jake did not die in New York City which means he was not at the way station in the gunslinger so what's gonna happen because he stopped it so it's like What's gonna happen now? What what is gonna happen? So, um, overall, I am on board, guys. I am really becoming a Tower fan in terms of curiosity. Uh, I really want more of Eddie. I really, really want more of Susanna because, oh my God, that, my guy is this character is nutballs, with a capital N. I just, and I think. After I finished the story, which was just a few days ago, I've been letting it simmer in my mind. And the more I think about it, the more Susanna Odetta Detta is absolutely on repeat, just kind of like a broken record of looking at various moments when Detta was bananas, when the subtle beauty, quiet grace of Odetta was in the forefront, and then this kind of last fantastical face-off, it it's so wild and I'm I'm really enjoying it. So I am on board with this crazy episode of Novel 2 and I most definitely promise to hit the gas on The Wastelands, which I believe is the third installment. So I'm going to get working on that here pretty soon. However, I'm thinking that the I think later, the latest, uh, hard case crime might sneak in there and snatch my heart before I read The Wastelands. So, but The Wastelands will happen soon, my guys, because I am a smitten kitten for what's about to go down next with Miss Susanna Dean and what the hell happened to Jake now? I, uh, I'm excited. So... Uh, If you guys would be so kind as to reach out to me with your thoughts, Uh, if I misread anything, please give me a direct page number or ballpark. I'll include the edition that I'm reading. I think mine is, I think it's 2003, the paperback that I have. Um, If not, I'll include that in the show notes and you can give me a direct sort of chapter area that I could explore if there's any part of the text that I might have glazed over and, and not read appropriately or misinterpreted Um, and uh, please no spoilers on future events but if you could guide me on Getting the most out of drawing of the three, I would be such a super fan of yours. But until then, we're going to conclude for now on this coverage of drawing of the three. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys uh, enjoy this episode, even though a lot of it's blabbering. Um, but I feel that's essential as I'm trying to understand the power of the tower and Roland's journey and these amazing characters that King has brought to life in the quartet. So. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this guys. I'm liking it. And, uh, I hope you enjoy my thoughts. Please reach out to the show at underratedsk at gmail with any ideas, direct quotes, page numbers you want to sling my way. I would love to hear from you regarding this episode or any episode. And if you're a fan of the show and haven't already, please head over to Apple podcasts. And if you would be so kind as to give us a five star, if you would be double, triple kind, you know, Oh, hecate triple susanna odetta oh, Detta triple if you would be so uh lovely and gracious to give us a kind review that would help us attract more king readers and uh would be awesome so until then stay tuned i promise to get more content out soon here as i get some life stuff balanced out thank you guys so much for listening and i'll talk to you later bye-bye